There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry? Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hello, movie troopers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Hannah Strong. On the show this week, Christmas is equal parts comedy and tragedy in The Holdovers, and David got to speak to its director, Alexander Payne. Grief manifests in surprising ways in All of Us Strangers. And on Film Club, it's a return to 1935's Merluth. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, welcome back. It hasn't been long. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> we'll be sick of the sound of us by this point. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we've kind of covered pretty much everything there is to say about the most recent issue, Poor Things, currently on sale. Um, so yeah, I thought maybe we could have a chat about, um, we're kind of deep in awards season, which is very boring a lot of the time, but are there any like big overlooked performances that you think uh, haven't been getting any attention there was one the other day and now i'm of course now i'm sitting down to talk about films i can't think of what it was i mean i actually think that paul giamatti has been a little bit overlooked but i mean he he'll probably get an oscar nomination so maybe not that overlooked didn't he win like the critics choice award or or, or one of the recent he won of... comedy oh, at okay. the golden yeah, globes yeah. yeah but that was the first time i was like oh yeah like, it's weird he's not had as much kind of buzz as maybe some of the other actors. I mean, I think Killian Murphy's probably going to win the Oscar, but um, I'm sad Charles Melton has been getting nominated for stuff, but not winning. That's my big kind of bugbear. He didn't get nominated for a Screen Actor Guild Award. In fact, maybe Sam didn't get nominated for anything at Screen Actors Guild Awards, which I think is crazy because it's masterpiece. I agree, but do you think part of that might come down to the bit of a backlash around Beatles um, Vili, who, I mean, it's very, very loosely based on something that happened to him, uh, but he kind of no, came out complaining. I think, I, think, I think when that happened, it was already kind of after the deadline for a lot of places, not the Oscars, but for a lot of places. I think it's maybe, in the case of SAG, maybe it's that they don't like being perceived. <laughs> it's a film about acting. It's about how acting and um the kind of true crime industrial complex are unethical so i can understand why they might be sensitive about that but i do think it's a glaring omission otherwise i mean this this film would have never got nominated for awards but i actually think one of the best performances i saw this year was in um the film fremont um it's this actress anita wali zada 
Um, and she plays this young woman who's working in a fortune cookie factory in California. And she is an Afghani translator who moved to the US after serving, um, like helping the US military. And it kind of charts all her uh, depression and isolation regarding that and her guilt and the way she's treated by the local Afghan community who regard her as a traitor. Anyway, it's a wonderful performance. And it, uh, yeah, it's totally gone kind of under the radar this year. But that would be one that I think was great and should have got more plaudits than it did. David, what about you? Anything that's going to have you rioting in the streets? I mean, personally, I think everybody who um, was all of the supporting actors in The Iron Claw should have been up for contention. I'm quite surprised none of them are. Yeah, I guess that one kind of, kind of came a bit too late in the day. I haven't seen The Iron Claw yet, so I cannot con- neither confirm nor deny your suggestion there. But I think someone who I think has been on a real roll and has been recognised by the Academy and Awards bodies for other films like Parallel Mothers is Penelope Cruz in Ferrari. I think, you know, it's a very meaty performance and she gets to do a lot of big emotions in the film. And, you know, in, in many ways, within the structure of that film, I think she could have been seen as the baddie or as the woman who is kind of shackling this male genius from being able to, to, to achieve his greatness. And I think that Cruz brings so much nuance to this to this role uh, of what of one that I think she could have very easily just phoned in and done a kind of very, very like almost sort of sub Almodovar spurned lover type role. But like that, there there are some really kind of amazing interior kind of dialogue scenes between Adam Driver and and Penelope Cruz that are just like as intense as some of the race scenes in there because of the way that she that she's doing it I think and uh, you know I haven't really seen she's not really been in the the running for anything so far but yeah I think it's a shame but you know this the, there's a lot of other good options in there and yeah I, I also agree with May December the, the May December crew well we should move on to our first movie which actually has been getting a good amount of awards buzz first up it's the holdovers Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady AQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. The Holdovers follows a curmudgeonly instructor at New... Sorry. The Holdover follows a curmudgeonly instructor at a New England prep school who is forced to remain on campus during Christmas break to babysit the handful of students with nowhere to go. Eventually, he forms an unlikely bond with a damaged, brainy troublemaker and with the school's head cook, who has just lost her son in Vietnam. But before we discuss the film, here's David Jenkins talking to its director, Alexander Payne. When you're in Bologna, you said this really fascinating thing that has, oh, has, has, has stuck with me to say fascinating things. and you 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 talked about i think you were talking about your personal print of election uh-huh. and how you had you you had you had it in these kind of premium conditions but then when you you got it out and take took a look at look at it after a while and it, it there was still kind of deterioration there oh no, that was citizen ruth oh was that citizen ruth yeah so i i have prints of all of my films uh i don't have a print yet for this one because we need to get a a better film out mm. shot digitally. But anyway, 
Yeah, someone, and, I, and most of these prints have not never been projected. I'm keeping them for when I'm 90 and I'm like offered a retrospective in Carlovi Vari or something. And I say, <laughs> well, I could bring my prints. We can't find this or that. Well, I've got one. But yeah, I, somebody wanted to, project, oh, it was in Munich. They were doing a, a tribute to Citizen Ruth and they couldn't find a print. So I shipped one of mine over and it looked great. It, it had never been projected, but the optical stripe had deteriorated. Mm-hmm. So you had, couldn't hear it. And I remember Grover said, yeah, with a lot of those mid-90s Mylar prints, you know, the <laughs> optical truck. So I actually now have to do a restoration on one of my own films, you know, and get out the mag and have a new, you know, shoot a new optical stripe, I guess. That's, it's, I mean, the whole point of the whole discussion of that was about the kind of the, the technological... The, the, the arc? The, yeah, the arc and how, and how you know, it's the... the, 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 the the gap between having to do restorations is kind of narrow, narrowing when you think it should really be. Yeah, different. and of course, all these archivists are very much concerned, and rightfully so, about digital because mm. the technology changes so quickly. Yeah, you know, try to get a file off an old computer. Oh, I you know, and it's possible. all been within our lifetimes. Oh yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I, I I can imagine the the process of actually restoring sets and roof would be kind of a nightmare, really. I don't. Hopefully, not a nightmare. Right. Hopefully, the negative the is in good shape. Uh-huh. It's just that that optical, and then anyway, I'm going to get into it though. Okay, okay. In fact, well, one of the one of the first questions we're going to ask you about this the the, the holdovers was was relating to it's a bit, I guess, a bit Bolognary, but like the I've read about you talking about the the, the Marcel Pagnol film Melus. Have uh, you ever seen it? Yeah, yeah. Where, where have you seen it? It's online. Huh, on, huh. on YouTube. Oh, so you saw it more recently? Yes. Oh, I thought you had seen it. I hadn't you know. seen it prior. Okay. No, no. When I when I'd read about that, you'd mentioned it. I I, I gave. What did you think of it? How is it? I actually don't remember it. Oh, it's really good. Good. It's really funny. You see the similarities between the two movies? What? I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> well, I know it's, it's got a similar setup. The idea is the same, mm. but I think the stories go in wildly different directions. Yes, yeah. I'd love the, to. And know. the screenwriter David Hemmingson has never seen it. Oh, really? Yeah. No, I just gave him the supplied him with a basic premise. Interesting. It, yeah. And where did where did you encounter this? Telluride. Ah, and was that part of a Pagnol retrospective or? <sighs> I don't know if it was just a recent restoration or they have guest directors every year who select six to eight films to show. I don't know. can't remember exactly why it was there. Although I will say, have you ever been to Telluride? I've never been to Telluride. So, you know, it was founded by Tom Luddy. Yeah. And Tom Luddy founded it 40, 50 years ago with the help of Alice Waters. You know who she is? She runs Chez Panisse, the, a famous restaurant in Berkeley, California, just outside San Francisco. I don't know. I'm All right, sorry. anyway. There's a famous restaurant called Chez Panisse, and Panisse is taken from a Pagnol film, and you go into this fancy restaurant, everything there is Pagnol. And so, anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm detouring. Because it's funny you say that, because like, I, remember, I remember at Bologna one year, I was watching this uh, retrospective Carl LaMail Jr. films. I think it might have been one of the years that you... you, Carl, you Carl, Carl Lemley? Carl, Carl Lemley, sorry. Oh, God. yeah, who had Uncle Carl from Universal. Yeah, yeah. And you watch so many of those films, and they're like 60 minutes long. That's the perfect and, length for a film, isn't it? Like er, like early pre-code movies, yeah. early 30s movies. But the, I, the, there's such strong ideas there. And you, I, I feel there's such a well. I was kind of feeling there's such a wealth of possibility of taking some of the, the germs of these of these like really you know, not even B movies, I imagine, but like programmers. Uh, well, indeed, sixty five to seventy eight minute programmers. You go to see even Frankenstein. Speaking of Carl Lemley, I, yeah. I watched Frankenstein again the other. It's like an hour and eleven minutes, yeah, maybe yeah. something like that. <laughs> 
I mean, one of the, the, the things, the similarities between the Pagnol film and this is that they're, they're films about schools, but they're, they're also, they feel like prison movies as well. Hmm. You know? Oh, that's interesting, yeah. I wonder if you had any... Um, you could throw in the, the Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, which I think is kind of a juvenile hall movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was the prison movie ever a kind of... No, no. never thought about it, but it's a good analogy to make. Okay. Yeah, because it's because it's like the people if. trapped there. Yeah, if. yeah, indeed, indeed. So I'd love to know what the decision be- besides feel, like fielding this uh, idea out to David was, and and rather than to having it for your, yourself and doing that writing. Well, I can't write everything. <laughs> I mean, some do, but it would be so nice to be like other big boy directors and and farm out some ideas and let them get their you know like Sp- Steven Spielberg. Not that he writes his own stuff, but. At any given time, I have no idea, but I would imagine 30 things are being developed for him, 40, 50, I don't know. <laughs> and then he finishes one film and looks at his field and says, which one is near ripeness? And then <laughs> plucks it. All right, let's 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 fast track this one. So I want to be that to some degree with two, three, four other things going on that mm-hmm. I have an idea and a writer who I think is appropriate for, can get it up on its feet. Of course, I'll do rewriting and double the edges and make it directable by me, make sure it's in my within my vocal range. But... Um, uh, I had this great idea for a movie, and but I hadn't done anything with it because I knew I'd have to go out to New England to hang out at those schools because I'm not from that world and mm-hmm. like harvest all the little details from which you make a decent story. But I'd never done that. And then I found this TV pilot by David set in a boarding school. So I just mm-hmm. said, hey, man, I'm Alexander Payne. Would you write this idea for me? You will. Great. Thanks. Come on over. And that's how it happened. And, and thank God. It's kind of a miracle for him and for me. We both enjoyed the process a lot. Oh, I'm interested to know, actually, because he's, he ne- this is his first feature film credit. He'd written a ton of TV. Yeah. Is there is there a delineation there? Can you, could, you know, can you tell when someone's coming from TV and writing with the kind of a TV mindset. I mean, I, I, as a viewer, I didn't, I wouldn't get that. But I wonder if you, in the early drafts, where there was like, what would characterize TV writing? Uh, things which are too facile or too uh, structure is probably the thing. Like, you mean too by the number structure or? I guess like the, the 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 a feature can have a sort of I guess grander arc, whereas TV has 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 uh-huh. mi- miniature arcs. I would accuse to a TV writer as I would accuse a playwright. Mm-hmm. of relying too much on dialogue mm-hmm. and not juxtaposition of images or, you know, or like having too much damn dialogue. You know, TVs, TV shows like dialogue, movies resist dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I certainly had to cut out. I did a lot of editing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like my screenplay's tight. But no, he, the answer is no. Okay. I didn't find any easy tropes. Mm-hmm. Other than maybe a little bit too verbose at times, but that's easily remedied. When you when you kind of p- pitched this idea to him, did you, w- at what point w- was the decision to set it during that era? Well, we knew it had to be a period film because single sex boarding schools don't exist anymore mm-hmm. to speak of. So it had to be a period film. I was really itching to start making period films. I've been make all my movies have been contemporary, but it's like. <laughs> been waiting for the right moment. And uh, and then, I don't know, it just sort of happened. 1950s is probably too Peter Weir. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're doing post-war, Peter Weir has the 50s. I don't know who has the 60s. Maybe Lindsay Anderson. And then 1970, the 70s. Our, we just had kind of a mental Ouija board that landed on 1970. Mm-hmm. And we both thought, oh, that sounds cool. 
you know, and then I could imagine films from that period because I was nine years old, nine and ten, and watching a lot of movies and still watch movies from that period. And then as a screenwriter, he had then tools to, as they say, up the stakes yeah. for the characters. The Vietnam War is a sort of Damocles, and of course, killing that woman's boy and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seemed to work. And he'd have more to say about it. I kind of poo-poo all this stuff. Yeah. But he's like, oh, you know, the that was a fulcrum time between... Like, he'd give you more detail, <laughs> more rationale for why it was in the 70s. For me, it just felt right. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated about, like, the sort of production design possibilities and, like, how, how much of that kind of stuff of, like, you know, special wardrobes and costume departments and, and actual set dressing... Was it a, a a big thing? Is it is I mean is it is it a, 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 va- a sort of well, product of a wealth of research and yes, yeah. and this is from my naive idea of Hollywood as based being like having a a company where you say I'm making a film in 1970 and they can just give it to you off the shelf. No, no. And if they if if they were to do that off the shelf stuff, it would maybe be unconvincing. Yeah. Or as many period films are too cartoony in their sense of period. Yeah. I love the fact that this is very non-pastiche. Of no, era. it wanted to be, it had to feel lived in. I mean, the, the deal was, I was saying, we're, we're, we have to pretend that we're making a contemporary film in 1970. You know, I didn't have any, like, filmmaking things that didn't exist then. Mm-hmm. I mean, I rarely do anyway. I'm usually just a camera and a tripod and a dolly. That's it. I've rarely used a crane. You know, I've never used a drone. Thank God. You know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And fortunately, though, I had a production designer who in turn had a set decorator, set dresser. I always get those confused. The one who's in charge of the sets. Yeah, yeah. Who shared my aesthetic of uh-huh. wanting it to look in as lived in and beat up and banal as if we were making a low-budget film then. We had a terrific location, Zarina, who knows the state <laughs> of Massachusetts like the back of her hand, who was showing us you know, relatively unchanged locations. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just, and then for the costume designer, Wendy Chuck, she didn't have much of a budget. She had a really undernourished budget. So it wasn't so hard to cast to, to clothe the leads. It's tough to clothe all the extras. Mm-hmm. And when did, when did Paul enter <clears throat> into the mix? Early on. Yeah. Oh, well, from the get-go, from the conception of the project, I knew I'd be giving it to Paul Giamatti if he'd take it. Right. And and um, the the character for me, like uh, among your other films, there is sort of lots of crossover with this. You do you do have some cantankerous older men in your in your in your, like in your film, <laughs> like Warren Schmidt. Is yeah, he cantankerous maybe. Oh, uh, Bruce Dern. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he was pretty curmudgeonly. <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, I, you know, not not to generalize, but there's a uh, one of the scenes in about Schmidt actually that is really sort of stuck with me is there is a scene where he goes back into work to see if they need any help yes and they're like no it's all it's all good it's all good yeah, we're and, good man and then as he walks out <laughs> he sees his his kind of all his files and everything out by the bins right and he like he has been kind of and and, and i and i love this idea of of paul in the film in holdovers as, as being this kind of mat, like all similar type kind of man out of time a principled man out of time huh. Yeah, yeah. I just, I mean, That's an, an, an observation. Yeah. yeah, no, I. It's an interesting one to make. I re- the, there's a really interesting Guardian interview where, where you're talking about that. You, you know, you yourself, you know, you have identified yourself as a director of comedies 
in the same way that John Ford direct is uh, self Yeah, I always say I'm making a comedy, right? Do you, do you think there are do you think there are kind of actors who are comedy actors? Because like Paul Paul seems to me like a comedy actor. He's you know he's he's got this kind of natural comic ability. He does. Who can also be devastating in dramatic scenes. Mm-hmm. But comic actors, who leaps to mind? Terry Thomas, <laughs> Toto. <laughs> Toto couldn't do anything and not be funny. <laughs> Yeah, that guy. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I, but then, then I've had Giamatti, and he can do both. Mm. Well, there is no both. It's just all one thing that it, with a spectrum to it. You know, human experience with humor. And, but I, all I know is he's delightful to look at. Yeah, yeah. Do you think there are actors who can't do comedy? Peter Sellers. I, did Peter Sellers ever do a dramatic part? <laughs> I'm trying to think. Probably one of those 60s. I don't know. You'd have to look through his filmography. Yeah. I mean, coming off the Goon Show, you'd think he'd certainly be. Although it's interesting, one of his last parts in his Oscar-winning part in Being There, mm-hmm. he's funny, but in a serious way, isn't it? I mean, correct for the tone of that film, another Hal Ashby film. Mm. Did you ever have any uh, aspirations when you were kind of cu- coming up in the industry to do do any of the jobs, like ed- edit or? cinematography or, or, or something that's never cinematography specific. it's that's too much like math yeah for me because it's like <laughs> i just avoid it i mean I, I get involved with lens choice and shot design of course but lighting i don't really like i don't know if i missed the classes at film school where they explained what all the lights are but i don't know it's just i'm intimidated by it editing for sure mm-hmm. had i not made it as a director i might have gone into editing do you think editing sc- is, screenwriting too, obviously. Edit, do you think editing is key to the comic aspect of your films? Or, or, or part of the... the Hugely. Yeah. As Kurosawa used to say, the only reason I write and direct is to get things to edit. <laughs> and when you're making a... Co- anyway, when you're making a comedy, how we edit the picture together is of key importance. I'm saying obvious things. Yeah. Forgive me. I mean, no, I think no, you know no, it's this obvious. Is, this is fascinating. But you have to, and that's one reason we screen, we meaning Kevin Tent, the editor, and I screen constantly. Mm-hmm. But that even goes back to Harold, Harold uh, Lloyd and Hal Roach. Mm-hmm. They screened the shit out of their films back then to mm-hmm. see where the laughs would fall. And those movies remain audience-proof to this day. Mm-hmm. If you ever go back and watch Harold Lloyd features... Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we have to begin to know the film predictably. Yeah. Oh, this always gets a big laugh. Oh, the audience gets a little bored here. Oh, we catch him there. And that's done through calibrating the film experience through editing and screening, constant screening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. And I hope to see you. So, David, yeah, Alexander Payne's kind of uh, his, I believe his last film was the one where Matt Damon became very, very small. Is that right? Would you say downsizing? That's the one. Would you say this is a return to form? Has he has he increased in greatness? <laughs> I'm one of those sickos who actually quite like downsizing. So I unfortunately didn't get to tell Alexander Payne that in the interview we did but um maybe that's one for another day yeah i mean downsizing was a film that he 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 had been wanting to make since like 2010 uh while he was kind of doing uh, getting that together he made the descendants and nebraska in the interim so that was like a huge huge you know a, a, a massive like roll of the dice for him and it didn't connect and it was you know it was something very different for him and it and you know people didn't necessarily dig it so much and yes i definitely feel that the the, the 
that within about 10 minutes of this film he, there is a there is a definite sense of like okay he's he, he he's gone back to to what he knows which is intimate dialogue driven character comedy that's very kind of literate and um that's a little bit kind of elevated from your usual kind of throw knockabout hollywood comedy having rewatched a couple of Payne's films ahead of doing the interview with him i mean it's not something i i, I actually thought of beforehand um but he's a he's a sentimental guy I and mean, he likes sentiment and, and a bit of schmaltz and and i think that that the holdovers is very much got that kind of almost frank capra vibe that he that he has brought to all of his films where you know if you look at things like about schmidt and nebraska they're they're about kind of um you know curmudgeonly old men who who are kind of you know you get to see another side of them or through the journey you spend with them you kind of either you see them learning about the errors of their ways or find out why they are like that they are and um i think that 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 the holdovers is no different i think the key difference to to the classic alexander pain mode of of his of like his previous pre pre um downsizing films is that this is his first period movie it's set in 1970 and to express that he has created it in a way that that definitely looks that is is, is intended as a little bit of a pastiche of gr- grainy slightly freewheeling like 1970s hollywood new hollywood type movies of the type pal ashby would be making the opening credits are styled in that kind of very like retro fashion as if it's been like even the focus features logo focus features weren't weren't around in the 70s but they've created a sort of 70s focus features logo for for specifically for the film and the storyline which as you say it's about a feared teacher and it's set in a it's set in a boarding school and that there through through a series of unfortunate events Paul Giamatti's character is is thrown together with Dominic Sessa's student Angus who is a emo tearaway and they clash in uh initially but throughout the film they kind of find a, a kind of common emotional ground and and I mean it's it's a film I think which explores the very strange relationship that teachers and pupils have like there's a kind of large emotional and and personal divide between that in that relationship between teacher and pupil as as there is sort of meant to be legally in most in most cases and this film asks like what if that divide is broken down a little bit and what if what if you actually learn about the fact that your teacher who is this person who sort of is on this pedestal and you don't really understand and you kind of revere a bit and despise a bit but what if it actually found out the kind of human quality? So, yeah, very much sort of Alexander Payne in his comfort zone, but but not a bad thing. And Hannah, I mean, the kind of third person in this uh, trio is the person that I believe is getting, you know, definitely the most solid um, awards buzz. Not that that's, you know, the be all and end all of anything, but um, Divine Joy Randolph getting all of her flowers after... I think she should have been nominated for Dolomite is my name, but like, do you think that she's kind of deserving of being the one that's being picked out as like the sort of most impressive part of this acting wise? Um, I mean, I'm not going to argue with it. I uh, I think that they're all, all three of them are, are really great. And I think it only really works because of the chemistry between the three of them. But I mean, yeah, the, 
divine is um, or divine rather is pretty pretty great in this film and i'm glad that she's kind of got to do something a bit more kind of well i mean she's kind of a classic comic actress but i think she's doing some i mean the the nice thing about this is because sometimes you get like the comic actor who's just like oh look i'm going to do a drama now but she they kind of do still play to the fact that she's got this sort of natural comic ability like she is very funny in this even though she's also heartbreaking yeah no i mean i i think the layeredness is nice i mean she's obviously like she kind of got her start in theater and, and comedy and i think she's really funny actually in um the lost city which came out last year she kind of steals every scene she's in in that film and actually I, I didn't realize that it was the same actress until today. And I was like, oh my God, that, that's where I recognize her from. But then I went back and I was like, oh, she's been in so much stuff and she's always been great. So it is nice that she's kind of getting that recognition. And I think it isn't the easiest role in the world because you don't want to play it as kind of, you know, a caricature of like the stereotype of like the, the mammy character kind of um, that we know from like film history of like this, the black woman kind of like, you know, waiting hand and foot on um, the, the kind of privileged white characters in the film. But I think like the film is smart enough to, to kind of not make it feel that way. And I think that Divine is such a charismatic presence in her own right and brings so much kind of warmth and tenderness to the character. I could have easily watched like a two-hour like Remains of the Day style film just about her, to be honest. And I, I whenever she wasn't on screen, and I was kind of like, let's, let's just check back in with her, see what she's up to. Um, yeah, I think I think she's really really great. I mean, do, for me, Dominic Sessa is like the big discovery here. Um, he was only cast in the film because he goes or did he's 21 now he he went to the school that where they shot the film and they had like an open casting call and he auditioned which is kind of a crazy way to land this like breakout film role and i think he's really great and hopefully we'll go on to kind of do lots more because i think that kind of bratty teenager role is so um entrenched in film history but there's this real kind of like vulnerability to Angus that I think he kind of captures very well and even for both him and um, Divine like going toe to toe with Paul Giamatti who's kind of one of the leading actors of his generation uh, maybe a, maybe a little bit underrated in that regard I think he's done a lot of bad movies <laughs> yeah yeah but he's good in them like, yeah. and fantastic no, no. actor maybe not a f- fantastic chooser agent <laughs> yeah maybe not a fantastic agent I mean he did billions people love billions I've not seen it I, I can't say I have much interest in that series, but... Um, well, do you like it when people have billions? Well, <laughs> then do I have a show for you? <laughs> Is that what it's about? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Oh, okay, no, that doesn't sound very interesting. I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I like, actually, he, I think he's been doing a really good, like, um, award circuit, and um, I loved all the coverage from the Golden Globes where he was on the red carpet talking about, like, how much he loved being in Planet of the Apes. <laughs> I'm just like, what a guy. Like, he's talking about it with that kind of the utmost reverence. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I, he's someone who I don't think differentiates too much between, like, the good films and the bad films. He just turns up and always, like, does his job and commits. And I, I love that for Paul Giovanni. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm happy that he's got something that is actually a good film. <laughs> yeah. In some ways, there's something a bit pretentious about only being in good films. 
<laughs> yeah, you hear that, Adam Driver? <laughs> no, oh, that's so I'm he, sorry, that's, that dinosaur movie. Yeah, that's what he did. That's he what handled he did himself. <laughs> um, Over the weekend, actually, a little bit of a, a, a Giamatti trivia. Me and uh, my wife decided to put on the, the movie Donnie Brasco. Have either of you encountered Donnie Brasco? It's like a kind of mob movie with Al Pacino and Johnny Depp. Yeah, I've yeah, seen that. Donnie Brasco. Yeah. From like 94, I think it is, or actually. Oh, what, what year is it? Sorry, ninety-seven. Yeah, halfway through, there's the there's a bit where Depp's character goes into this motel room, and in the background is like Baby Paul Giamatti, and sitting there, and his partner is yeah. is, is Baby Tim Blake Nelson. <laughs> so you got two, like two incredible character no actors way. just doing like one-liner roles in Don, in Donny Brasco, and it was like it was a proper kind of you know the the. Um, the, the Leonardo DiCaprio meme of, of him, like, that's... <laughs> yeah, that was me. <laughs> that was you. <laughs> yeah, it's nice that the cream of uh, that cast has risen to the top eventually. But yeah, we should get some scores on this because we've got another great movie to talk about. Um, David, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Yeah, I'm probably going to give this one fours across the board. I had a really good time with it. I think it's sort of peak Alexander Payne, if you will. And and, and I think w- when I say that, that there it does come with certain for me slight slight kind of structural flaws and i think that it's that there there is a sort of final act which is quite baggy and you know as i mentioned before he is a director who does like a bit of sentiment and and there are uh, there are a few touches where it's a little bit ott um so, but but so, it's something i'm definitely keen to to revisit Hannah, what about you? Um, three, four, four for me. I think I'm, I'm really excited to rewatch it. Actually, it's, it's quite a while since I saw this. Now I think I saw this in October, maybe. So um, that feels like a million years ago. Um, now we're in January, but um, yeah, I was very, I was a bit nervous after downsizing, which I, unlike David, I hated and thought it was awful. <laughs> um, so um, I, yeah, I was a little bit kind of. Had a few reservations, um, but I was yeah really pleasantly surprised. I think it looks great, it sounds great. All the love that they've put into making it feel like the seventies in kind of a um, a very textured way. You know, you, you, it doesn't feel kind of synthetic, and I think that only comes from you know really caring about what you're putting on screen. Um, yeah, so four, three, four, four for me. Yeah, I'm probably at um, a two, four, four, but I, the the two comes from the release date. And I don't know if this was the same for our American friends, but the fact that I think this is such a wonderful film to have watched at Christmas, and I only watched it about a week and a half ago, um, kind of the fury of watching this in January when it would have been such a perfect Christmas Eve film or Boxing Day film to go and see with the family uh, slightly tempered it but yeah no full four it's it's funny it's sweet it's not histrionic in its tragedy uh, particularly with what happens um, with Divine's character and yes Alexander Payne is back, baby. Down your kind of what was it? What is it? A spit bucket of wine is that he has in sideways that has always stayed with me. Next up, it's all of us strangers. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. One night in his near-empty tower block in contemporary London, Adam has a chance encounter with his neighbor Harry. As a relationship develops between them, Adam finds himself drawn back to his childhood home where his parents appear to be living despite having died 30 years before. Hannah, God, where do you start with this? I, I had to leave the screening pre-Q&A because I was just in floods of tears. Yes, I think we were, were we at the same screening or were we at a different screening? I don't know. If you saw someone make a dash for the door, I'm very sorry, Paul Mescal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were in the Q&A. Oh, and, okay. and Adam Scott. Um, I couldn't stay. <laughs> I was too upset. Um, but yeah, is this is this more than sort of just tugging at the heartstrings, um, terribly sad stuff? I mean, do you think this has more to say? Yeah, I think so. I think that the criticism that um, it's been making a lot of people cry and that's why they like it is a bit naive and a bit rude, to be honest. All films, in my opinion, I've, I've written about this before. I've said this maybe even on the podcast. I think every single film is an act of manipulation. So, you know, we're really in the art of evaluating how successful that act was. And some people do not like that they've been made to cry or they feel like they are being you know, unfairly manipulated. <laughs> um, but in the case of this film, I mean, Angie Hay has always kind of worked in this mode of creating these stories about queer culture, about um, queer tragedy, queer loss, loneliness. You know, I think he is very kind of uh, honest about the things that interest him as a filmmaker and how he wants to tell these stories. So this it's not like this film came out of nowhere you know i think it's incredibly relevant to his artistic work but also he said you know if you read the interview which i did with him which will be online next week for the film's release you know he says this is an impress this is a very personal story to him he grew up in the 80s in 70s and 80s like during the aids crisis as a young a child and then a, a young adult like trying to kind of you know reconcile his sexuality with the great amount of tragedy that was happening in the world. And I think he's not coming at it from a perspective of, oh, this everyone will relate to this because they've lost somebody at some point in their life. 
I think he's coming at it from his own kind of very, you know, unique perspective and his very unique reference points, the kind of music and the clothing and all the kind of 80s ephemera of his youth. Um, It's all very specific, but there's that old kind of adage of like the more specific you go with a story, the more it opens up and becomes relatable for other people. I'm not not entirely sure how that works on a kind of psychological level, but um, I definitely, like, I found it incredibly moving. I think that the performances Andrew Scott and Paul Meskell give are are fantastic, but I think that Claire Foy was maybe the standout for me. I think I'd never really seen her do something like this before. I think she's always done the kind of more showy, you know, stiff upper lip British uh, things of, like, the crown, and then she um, did... Unsane with Steven Soderbergh, which I really did not care for. So seeing her operate in this kind of mode where she's basically parenting Andrew Scott, but treating him as though he is like kind of a 12 year old, but also kind of a grown man. It's like a very difficult task she has as an actress. And yeah, I thought she was wonderful. So I'm, I'm very much on board. I had to leave the screening I went to because I was like, absolutely like not okay at the end of it (laughs) emotionally and then the second time I saw it I said to myself like oh I'm not going to cry the second time because I know every story beat and I still cried so you know I um, have a a kind of strong emotional attachment to this film I think it's such a profound and kind of earnest take on grief yeah I mean I'd I'd hate for people to listen to this and think that like oh I should avoid this because it's something that's going to be like unendingly miserable it's not at all and I think the scenes particularly between um, Andrew Scott and Claire Foy are uh, they're beautiful they're lovely they're heartwarming they're funny and sure it's devastating because but it's sort of a little bit fait accompli you're not they've passed before the film has even started so it's more kind of like the stunning opportunity of like what if you had a chance to like go and and like have your relationship with your parents grow in a way that you'd been denied i suppose Um, i mean it's it's really like catharsis isn't it it's not just the kind of grief it's the catharsis and i think that's something that maybe i should mention is that yeah that it it, it isn't just making you cry to make you cry it's about the kind of emotional release in some way and whether that is to do with grieving or to do with love or to do with loneliness that's that's more kind of what it is uh, David, what about you? Did you cry? Sorry, not to kind of reduce to that. <laughs> you know, I, I weirdly, my my crying thing is that I don't tend to cry at things that are that are very sad. I cry at things that that are very happy. That's a me problem, of course. I don't know. I don't know what that's about. But that's not to say that, that I didn't f- find the film like you know very affecting and 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 uh, and what what it was doing and saying to be like very profound I, I mean i would say that like take coming at it from a sl- slightly different angle to hannah like the more i've thought about the film i think it's easy to sort of look at the f- look at this film about uh, as being a very kind of human drama and it's it, it, you know in in that sort of template of like people interacting and talking and revealing themselves and having these kind of heart-to-heart things and the drama coming through character development but i think at the same time and this is not intended as an insult, but like there is something like M. Night Shyamalan about this film as well, where you have like there is there is a sort of like supernatural plot or there are, there are question marks about where are we? Why are we here? 
and what's the real reason for us being here and are, will we get a revelation about this or will we find out about where who this is and where this person's come from and you know like that there is a sort of almost genre ghost story element a la the sixth sense at the core of this film and it's it, i really liked how the fact that, that this this felt like one of those kind of bbc christmas ghost story movies like but sort of maybe delivered in a register that is a bit more open-hearted melodramatic and and political as well so yeah it was it you, you, it's a film that's like it, i think it operates on these two really sophisticated levels where the the, the human insights and the, the 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 trajectories of these characters and their sort of need to to sort of express themselves about about certain issues in their lives is so is so brilliantly done on that on on a very kind of I guess a sort of detail writing level. And then you've got this sort of structural conceit as well that is also in the background. I mean, I know it's based on a novel, which I haven't read. So maybe Hannah, I know you've read it. So maybe that you, you could comment on whether that, that sort of structure is a bit more present in the novel. Yeah, the novel is um, very different in some ways and obviously quite similar in others. What, what, what a nothing statement. But um, the novel is about, it, it, so the novel is by a, a Japanese author and it was written, I think, during the 80s and then translated into English uh, only fairly recently, I think. And there was a film version made in Japan shortly after the book was released. Um, but the, the the novel centers on a heterosexual man living in Japan and um, that's the kind of, relationship thing there and then the relationship with the parents i would say is kind of more sinister almost like it's it's more of a conventional kind of ghost story um whereas this i think is less that it's not you know andrew scott's character is not kind of been haunted and in the novel strangers physical kind of more malevolent edge Whereas I think this is, you know, about like the upshot of like letting go and kind of moving and working through grief. This is, the book is actually more kind of yeah. There's almost like a energy vampire esque element to the ghosts. Um, but the book is is very very good. Um, but I think it certainly feels like the thing that Andrew Hay was interested in was um, the the framework, I guess, more than the actual like the kind of actual content of the story and certainly like he brings all the kind of queer elements to the film that uh, didn't really exist in the original i can't imagine that it's like you've taken almost like all the stuffing out (laughs) like that's that's so little connect like all the elements that i thought was what it made it what it what is uh sorry that again that's that's not very well phrased but yeah all the elements that kind of seem to me to be like the actual core of this film didn't exist in the book then that's really interesting no, 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 yeah. I mean, the book's really good. It's just very different. I actually know a couple of people who are very kind of sniffy about Andrew Haig's film and they're very much like, well, the, the book is so much better and the the other film is much better, which is, you know, fine, entitled to that opinion. Um, but yeah, they're, they're both like well worth checking out. It's just don't expect it to be exactly the same as this. But, you know, I think that's the kind of beauty of it. I think Andrew Hay really makes it his own kind of thing and it feels so personal to him without being a kind of um, a memoir film. Um, so you should get some scores on this. Sorry, I'm curious before we, you get some scores on this. Book first or film first? Oh, I don't. I actually don't think it really matters. Oh, okay. Okay. I went. I saw the film before I saw before I saw the book before I read the book. Um, I I think maybe do it that way, but um, you can't really get spoiled. I think <laughs> for this film, there is maybe one thing, but I mean, I, yeah, I 
Yeah. Well, it's out this week. People, they have time to read a book yeah. first. This is the way they can. It's out next it. week. Um, they've got they've got time. It's next week, next Friday. You, you can read a book in a week, guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I really don't think. Um, they're more companion pieces i would say okay well scores wise what are you going to go with and in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect um i am going to i'm trying to remember what i said in my view i always worry about someone catching me hey you are a river flowing through life your scores can change your perspective can change four five five maybe i mean i don't know if i can give it a five for enjoyment because like enjoyment is the wrong word really i i just was kind of crying like about half an hour in until the end of the film but um i do think it's it's a wonderful wonderful film and i think andrew hay is such a profoundly generous filmmaker and certainly when i was interviewing him for little while eyes he's so generous with his time as well and so open um and such a kind of great person to have a chat with um his screen talk uh, from the bfi london film festival is actually on the bfi youtube channel tim roby did that interview a friend of the pod tim Roby did that interview and it's it's really wonderful um so i highly recommend that for any andrew hay fans out there David, would you count yourself amongst those as a Andrew Hay fan? Yeah, yeah. I, you know what, I, I, I'm actually a bit more into his kind of, you know, <laughs> I'm really into his early stuff. Uh, <laughs> um, like Weekend, and I love 45 Years as well, which which this very much feels like a kind of return to into the in terms of the subject matter. It's almost like a kind of flip flip reverse version of 45 years but it has that kind of classic bbc ghost story element to it also i'm probably going to give this fours again over across the board because yeah i saw it a yonks ago myself and i you know i i I kind of feel that like yeah that i agree that sort of it's 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 heavy going it's big and it's it's really kind of it's it's sometimes really tough because it kind of it's the stuff it's dealing with you know the 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 psychological traumas that that it's sort of couching in in the narrative uh i I want i i want to give it another go i I, i'm keen to see it again and uh and and actually i've I've got to say it's one of those films where i think it, it sort of has you know because it's dealing with time and perspective and i think the the world and and geography isn't kind of conventional in the film there may have been some bits that i i kind of missed when i saw it and didn't and i had to have explained to me at a later date so i think now knowing those things i want to actually watch the film again and maybe properly understand it so yeah i i am admitting that i maybe didn't understand what had happened in the film <laughs> which again it's a me problem there's so many me problems this week I mean, I, we're all having me problems I'm, I'm probably um yeah i also love 45 years so it's probably a four four five um i did find myself kind of half threatening people over christmas with this film where it's just like yeah yeah you, you got some grief you got some unresolved issues you know what i've got <laughs> <laughs> you know what they sent me on dvd <laughs> it's a bit like that yeah i was warning people that i know have had kind of like losses in the past year i was like maybe just like yeah you want to pick up that scab (laughs) (laughs) maybe be careful going into it (laughs) but yeah no a beautiful film um and if if kind of everybody in this ends up with you know at least with the british film awards getting lots of plaudits i think that would be you know age very well shall we say 
This is this is this is a film that's giving the BAFTAs a real open goal to to actually do something worthwhile, and I hope they take it. <laughs> well, with a British <laughs> film for once, yeah. Instead of like doing an American film, being like, oh, it's a British co-production. This is oh, I mean, they yeah, do it the season. Let's, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Well, next up, it's kind of a uh, companion piece, I suppose, to our first film. It's Merluse. A tough teacher charged with looking after students left behind at a boarding school during the Christmas holidays rises to the challenge and comes to better understand the boys in his care. So, of course, David, this pairs perfectly with uh, all of us strangers. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But, I mean, do you know, was this a direct influence on Alexander Payne and the holdovers? Well, I do, I do pick it up in the, in, the, um, in the interview. And hopefully listeners who kind of go into that, I th- hopefully there's enough context there in the interview to, to get that, there, that this film was an influence. So it's a 1935 Marcel Pagnol film. And as as Payne says, it's it, it's something that he caught randomly at one Telluride film festival during a kind of, they have a, they have a thing at Telluride, which is like a kind of free choice. And I think, and I think that they, that it must've been programmed in, in, in that where someone gets to program some oldies and yeah, he, he saw it and he, he cut it kind of stuck with him and he jotted the idea down like the, the sort of general plot of the film and said could you you know sent it to david the writer david hemmingson and said could you could you do something on it and yeah ahead of my interview i was like you know i'm gonna just as a, just as a nice little talking point i'm gonna try and seek it out and find it and you know it is there online if for, for people who should choose to want to see it and it's a wonderful little little film and and yeah it is it is about a, a teacher called uh, Blanchard who is uh, has this nickname Melus, which is a kind of I think some kind of like French slang term. I'm not sh- entirely sure what it what it means. Maybe one of our f- uh, French listeners can enlighten us on that. Doesn't it mean like fish? It's cod. Is it cod? Because they say smells like cod, doesn't he? Yeah, oh. yeah. I think I think it means cod. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Of the world. Okay, so you're, you're way ahead of me. So I, 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 I wasn't I wasn't entirely sure what it what it meant. But anyway, yeah. He he he's given this nickname, and and uh, as with Paul Giamatti's character in the Holdovers, he he too. I mean, the the, the influence of the so Paul Giamatti's character in the in the Holdovers has a a wandering eye, and um, the character of Malouse also has like a a, a kind of very weird and and unsightly glass eye which he covers up in a with a kind of blacked out uh, glasses frame and this 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 film is set in a in a more a, a, a definitely a more not 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 as kind of plush boarding school in France um like lower income kids are staying there and it's the it's it is the same setup of kids being left like left to to stay at this boarding school over Christmas, and this grouchy teacher is the one who's set to look after them. And it's essentially like instead it's it's a sixty minute film, and 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 the, the plot is instead of you know he's they all think he's a grouch, but then he actually gives them all Christmas presents. They kind of realise the error of his ways that he's actually, you know, he's beyond that kind of grouchy facade. He's actually a kind of caring and um, passionate guy. And it's it's short and very very sweet, and the the parallels with with the holdovers are, are really just they they tickled me. I, I, I you know the, I mean as as Alexander Payne he said he didn't he didn't suggest 
that David Hemmingson watched the film. He only gave him a description of it. So it must have been Payne himself that brought a lot of these little kind of like ticks and the fact that he wears a, a hat and the, the, the one that the eye and the beard. Is he have he doesn't no, Giamatti doesn't have a beard in this film, does he? Just a moustache. But like but this this guy has a huge bushy Un, like unkempt beard and you know he looks like a kind of monstrous in this film and and Giamatti doesn't doesn't look as much like that but yeah it's de- a delightful film that people should fans of the holdovers should seek out and Hannah did uh, did Malus make you believe in the power of Christmas <laughs> uh, yeah no it's very charming it's like an hour long and um it, what a delightful hour i do think the art uh, the, the, the special the special effects in the 30s were obviously not what they are today and uh, the eye is very the eye felt like it was it was following me around <laughs> watching the film um but yeah it's yeah it's just a great time you know remember when films could be an hour wasn't that crazy like yeah and it, 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 it's again it's a very simple story i think that there are ways obviously that the holdovers kind of builds on that framework and builds it out and i think the holdovers has a lot more kind of kind of darkness in there than this film this is this is really just you know it's just a teacher and some students kind of learning to understand each other a bit better Um, so in some ways yeah it's kind of a a simpler film but um no very very charming my first foray into um what's his name david Marcel Pagnol. Pagnol. My first foray into Marcel Pagnol. Um, and uh, yeah, I had I had a lovely little time with it. Yeah, I would say if you're sick of watching It's a Wonderful Life every year, this time, in about 11 months' time, you could you'd do well to turn on uh, Malus instead. Kind of just as heartwarming and, you know, not as sort of overwrought with a angel getting its wings or whatever happens at the end of that film it's it's definitely a christmas movie deep cut i'm i I hope to see that crop up on lists of great christmas movies very very soon i will put something in my calendar to pitch for that commission in about eight and a half months thank you very much for the idea so david you want to go first what is your non-movie recommendation for listeners this week sure um yeah i i mean at the moment, we're going to do a gaming pick. Last time I did a, a, a book pick, so it's 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 either books or games. I'm afraid, sorry, no TV for me. So it's a it's a game called God of War Ragnarok, which is a sequel to the game God of War, and it's essentially a game where you're playing this uh, grisly guy called Kratos and his, and his son Atreus, and it's set in a kind of prehistory time of of like of of gods odin thor all these kind of people and you know you you're sent out to avert ragnarok which is the kind of end of days and the thing that 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 is great about the game actually is that it's one of very few games like usually when you have cutscenes and cinematics you could you have a little button that you can press to skip through them because you want to get to the game and you want to get playing and, and hitting people and throwing axes and whatnot but in this game you can't skip the cinematics because it's so integral to the actual arc of the of the story and what what's really interesting about this game and 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 I think people have it came out end of 2002 so I'm a bit late to it but a lot of people have written about how this crossover between movies and games and and this this definitely feel like I I'm actually kind of getting to the end of it now and there's 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 actually some really powerful moments in the game like like some huge sort of twists in the storyline that are really 
done in a really dramatically effective way. I mean, I don't, I haven't probably played enough games to be able to sort of describe it as a revolutionary game, but I've certainly never, like, in, in most games, the, the storyline comes as a kind of afterthought, as a way to kind of string together the actual playing elements and this one it feels there's a lot more equality between actually trying to fuse those two elements together and actually make it into a a proper sort of narrative and drama um and yeah it's one of the things that's that 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 is is amazing about it is that they've got you know you guys will probably know this but it they've got the 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 actor bradley bradley someone who you who was in the west wing it's richard schiff from the West Wing, you 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 definitely know him if you saw him. He's kind of like a little kind of slightly unassuming, um, very sort of deadpan guy, and he plays like he plays the antagonist in the game, Odin, and he and he's and it's giving he's giving an incredible performance, and he's he it's like it's one of the best movie villains I've I've seen in a long long time, and it's just very weird that it's part of a game. So yeah, um, heartily recommend that. But I know that, but obviously this is I'm late to the party, but I'm sure lots of people have played it and know all this already. But I'm now on it, so there you have it. One of these days, I'm going to invest in some sort of console and no, Layla. trust in my hand like a no. to actually do you, these you, things. You, you do too much already. <laughs> do you can't do games as well. <laughs> <laughs> Your brain it will explode. Time suck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I make time for reality TV. That does sound a lot more worthwhile than uh, Real Housewives of Salt Lake City or whatever it is that I somehow carve out an hour for once a week. Hannah, uh, what about you? What is your recommendation? Um, so mine is a book, um, and I, I don't think I recommended this last week. The problem is with doing this podcast for a few weeks in a row is you, you kind of run out of things because your whole life is watching movies. You're like, oh God, what do I do that isn't watching movies? Anyway, um, I am recommending the book Mickey Seven by Edward Ashton, which is the basis for Mickey 17, the Bong Joon-ho film, which is coming out hopefully this summer. We don't know yet. Um, but yeah, I started reading it last week week beginning of this week and i'm not very far into it yet but um i'm having a great time it's very funny it's a sci-fi novel about a man who is a replicant and he's been hired by this kind of space exploration company to basically be the guy they send in to do all the dangerous menial tasks and he's expendable because they can replace him in a clone and we when we meet him he is about to die for the seventh time so um yeah it's just really fun i definitely can see why what pattinson was cast in the film version because he it's a very like he's kind of a loser the 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 character and um Rob Pattinson does that very well um there's giant centipedes there's kind of this oppressive loom of this big capitalist company who don't really care about people and yeah I mean I say I'm, I'm not super far into it yet but it is really fun and if you're wanting to kind of prep for um Mickey 17 it's, it's probably a good one to um pick up now so you can be like oh I read the book and the book was better or the book was worse I don't know we'll see <laughs> And we're kind of fingers crossed for maybe Karen is uh, when this film comes out, or is it? Is that just kind of wishful thinking on Twitter? I hope so. I could see it because it's five years since Parasite, so it would be like kind of you know a nice like little symbolic thing. And I, I mean, it sounds like it's finished. 
I think it's just like Warner Brothers kind of rejigging the schedule a bit. I don't. Th- there's no way they're going to can it. <laughs> they're not. They're not going to can the next film from the guy who won Best Picture. So you say um, that. We, I think we you will say get that. To see it. <laughs> oh God! Where you've dinked us? Sorry, guys. Sorry um, to be cyn- I, I, cynical, but you know, who knows? Pattinson would never let that happen. He'd do a heist. <laughs> He's that kind of guy. Him, him and Bong breaking into the vault. <laughs> But what happened also to the Parasite TV show? That's a, That's been kind of in the pipeline for a while, and I haven't heard yeah, anything about it recently. Yeah, Will Ferrell was exec producing. So I don't know why I'm talking to you as if you are like Bong Joon-ho's representative. I mean, we did we did we did do the book on him. Um, uh, I think they decided it wasn't a very good idea. I seem to recall that it isn't happening anymore. I think that yeah, it it quietly was kind of like actually we don't need to do this. Because it was going to be an American, uh, like, kind of version. And it's just like, we don't need that. And we've kind of got the curse now, which almost feels like, yeah, it feels like, a, it, it, obviously it's not about the same thing, but it feels like that's a kind of, I don't know, Parasite-esque take on the American class system and homes, the housing market. That's my hot take. What a final week. episode that was, my <laughs> oh, goodness. Should have recommended that. I can't remember if we have recommended... We probably have recommended The Curse before. I think you have recommended that, to be fair. Yeah. So hopefully people <laughs> took your recommendations strongly enough that they uh, they stuck through to the end because it really is a doozy. A great, a great finale. Yeah, really good. But go in not knowing anything about it. <laughs> um, so if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at TCO London or tweet us at LWLies. Next time, we'll be talking Zone of Interest in American Fiction and I talk to Cord Jefferson and Jeffrey Wright. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were David Jenkins and Hannah Strong. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Mm-hmm.